0: And then, of course, having these green spaces helps improve your general health and allows for opportunities for reflection for some people spiritually as well. And plus, it's a familiar environment. And being on a foreign alien planet like Mars, having something familiar around you is a comfort.
1: Colonizing Mars. An idea so romantic, I made a podcast about it. But it's not all roses and sunshine on the red planet. In fact, you should be as excited to colonize Mars as you are the South Pole, except it's a little colder and a lot more remote. If we're serious about putting people on the Mars surface, we're going to need to figure out how to make it much more like home, including all the green space we humans love to surround ourselves in. We'll talk plants, habitats, and the value of a good breeze on Mars. All this and more on today's episode of the We Martians Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the We Martians podcast. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. Well, I can't quite believe it, but it's basically December already. Besides all the stresses that normally come with that realization, December means something else to me. It was a year ago that I decided to make this podcast a reality, to make it more than just an idea I'd been noodling in my brain for a couple of months. When I first started, I wasn't sure where I'd go with it. I knew something was happening in the world of space and I was really excited about it. I wanted to share it, and I wanted it to be about Mars. I had a goal of producing 16 episodes in 2016, but I didn't know who would be on them, and I certainly didn't know who would listen. Looking back, I can't help but be thankful for all the amazing things I've been able to learn through this project. I've met a host of incredible scientists, engineers, astronaut candidates, and other podcasters. They've showed me a love for geology, astronomy, and as you'll learn today, ecology. They've taught me how spacecraft work, how industry works, and how politics work. On social media, I've interacted with listeners, followers, and even just regular casual fans who've celebrated space successes and mourned space failures alongside me. Most importantly, I've been privileged to have a small but passionate group of listeners, that's you, who are subscribed and listening to every episode. You are the people who make it all worthwhile, and I must thank you for that. I want to give a shout out to Ben from the Orbital Mechanics podcast, which, by the way, is a great podcast if you haven't already subscribed. He made me aware of something called My Podcast Review Service. You see, despite reminders during every episode to anyone about the importance of ratings and reviews on iTunes, I was really confused as to why I wasn't seeing any. It turns out that when you log into iTunes, it only shows you your own country's store. And though my audience is mostly American, I am, in fact, Canadian this service let me look into other stores and lo and behold there you all are. So before we head into the episode I just want to say thank you to Jorslu, Faros Nike, Battlehawk 4, Mark Toselsky, Sagan Science, Hanukkah, and Odysseus Vavuricus for your kind reviews and five-star ratings which I have now finally seen. I really appreciate the time you took to write them and I hope you're still here listening. Now on with the show. As you can probably imagine, The Martian is one of my favorite movies, books, stories, whatever you want to call it. A near-future tale of exploration, discovery, and evidence-based problem-solving certainly tugs at the heartstrings of a Mars lover like me. But One of my least favorite tropes or memes that come out of this hit, and I can't believe I'm even dignifying it with an acknowledgement, is the whole potato bit. Seems like you can't talk about Mars at all on mainstream social media or other forums without someone wryly reminding you not to forget your potatoes. Like, I get it, he ate a lot of potatoes. It's time to let that one go, everybody. And now I'm really realizing that I have all your tweets and emails to look forward to reminding me probably just one more time. But despite this personal pet peeve, the idea of growing food and plants on Mars is a really important problem to solve. We can invent all the technology we want, but realistically, we'll always need to eat. And plants can provide plenty of other benefits that might transform a barren, airless, freeze-dried, vacuum-like wasteland into a place to live and work. But how do we even begin to tackle it? Recently, I came across a really cool startup that is trying to do just that. It's called Deep Space Ecology, and its founder is not someone you might expect to be commercializing Mars ecosystems. A student. Yet she's got some really forward thinking ideas and most importantly, knows how valuable plants are to human health. So I had to learn more. Okay, we're here with Morgan Irons, the founder of Deep Space Ecology. How are you doing today, Morgan?
0: I'm doing well. How are you doing, Jake?
1: I'm excellent. I'm really, really, excited to have you on here. I, I must admit, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm not a scientist myself, but I consider myself sci- scientifically literate. But biology, ecology is way out of my comfort zone, <laughs> so um, you'll have to bear with me here. I'm, I'm, but I'm really excited to learn about some of the work you're doing. So before we dig into that, though, let's let's learn a little bit about you. So you know, what's your background? What's your education? And how did you get into doing something like this?
0: Okay. Well, I'm currently a fourth year student at Duke University. I'm majoring in environmental science and biology with a chemistry minor, and my focuses in those are for environmental science, the development of closed ecological systems for space environments, and for biology, it's ecology. And so I'm finishing up my fourth year here, and will be graduating in the spring. And from there, I'm planning on taking a gap year before going into a PhD program, probably for agroecology. Wow, okay. Yep. (laughs) And so I pretty much got into this line of work developing closed ecological systems for space habitation back in my second year, my sophomore year here at Duke. I was pretty much going through one of those experiences that a lot of college students go through where I was finding that what I was doing wasn't necessarily where my passions were lying. And so I had to sit down and look at pretty much do some soul searching of seeing that I've always had this passion for space exploration and I have this passion for environmental studies. And so doing some research, I found some literature from the 1960s um, from Soviet Union, Russia, um, where they were doing research on closed ecological system development for space habitation. And that really intrigued me. And so I looked more into it and I decided that for my spring semester of my second year at Duke, that I would do an independent study with a professor, pretty much reviewing half a century's worth of research on closed ecological systems. And so I did that um, independent study. And throughout that study, I started started to see a trend on how these systems were developed and applying ecological theories and principles to these models, I started to see that there was a common flaw between them. And so from that review, I was able to develop a model, the three zone model, which we'll probably get into later during this podcast. And from there, I pretty much just took off and decided to stay this course. And now it's turning into a career.
1: Wow. Okay. That's, um, it's interesting to, to think that the, uh, the, the seeds of the work that the Soviet Union did would, would one day <laughs> spring this kind of work over in, uh, on this side of the world. Right. So that's, that's a fun story. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that a, a trend in a lot of, uh, a lot of the scientists I talked to is, is that pivot you talked about. You start with one thing and then you realize you wanted to go a whole different direction. So, mm-hmm. um, well, I'm glad you found what you were, you were getting into. So, um, let's talk about your company, uh, Deep Space Ecology. So, What's the story behind the company side of it? I mean, you started just doing research, but um, how did you get to having a, your own LLC and, and you know, what were the, the earliest days like?
0: Well, I founded the company this past spring in May and pretty much the thing that triggered the founding of this company was attending the Humans to Mars conference in DC. At that point, I wasn't really thinking about creating a business. It was more like... I would do this research and continue it on into my further education and then go on to work for some company in the space industry. Um, But at this conference, I started to see that there wasn't really anyone filling the niche of closed ecological system habitation. It was mostly technology, rockets, how would we get from Earth to Mars or from Earth to the moon, but not really what would we do when we got there. How would we set up these systems? How would we live off the land and create a sustainable system that could keep us there for generations of people? And so my dad had also attended the conference with me. And we got to thinking and we decided to found this company, Deep Space Ecology. And in the early days, it can be a bit challenging because... You need to go through all of the legal stuff, of course, and then getting kind of your name out there, seeing who would be interested in coming and working with you, especially at the beginning where there's not necessarily any, any funding or any salary that people would get from this. Um, so my father and I pretty much had to set up a company where people would be interested in working with us, no matter if we didn't have funding at the moment. Um, And that's pretty much what happened. We've found that a lot of people were interested in what we were doing and were interested in entering the space industry, but really hadn't had a chance to do so um, because it can be very difficult to do it. So we pretty much created an opportunity to, I don't want to say take advantage, but pretty much open up this new niche for different people to come in and help us make this happen.
1: That's awesome. So, I mean, how many people do you have on the project right now? like
0: Including myself, um, there are 23 of us. Um, yep. And we have people from all around the world helping us with this.
1: That's amazing. That's great, great to hear. So, I mean, what do you, what do you define the, the objectives of Deep Space Ecology? Like, do you have a mission statement or, or what's your, your your horizon goal?
0: Yeah. So, um, pretty much our vision is making food available in space by solving food security on Earth. And so our objectives for the company are to create closed ecological systems at locations on Earth that have need of water conservation, air cleanliness, and temperature maintenance um, to provide clean living and food to private individuals as well as public populations. And these locations will include some of the deep spaces of our own planet, which include like the Arctic tundra high altitudes above the tree lines and below the surface of the ocean as well. And so we're looking at pretty much solving problems here on Earth and extending that knowledge and ability from Earth to establish a closed ecological system in space. And this will help us further the goals of interplanetary space exploration and human expansion.
1: So I listened to your talk at the Mars Society Convention. Um, it was it was great primer. Um, it seems like your idea is centered around creating these closed ecological systems, like you say. So maybe we'll start with that that concept. So, you know, what is a CES and how is it different from, you know, life support systems that we've used in the past?
0: So to understand a closed ecological system, you need to understand what an ecological system is and then what a closed system is. So an ecological system is a system in a particular area in which living organisms and their non-living environment interact. Um, and the non-living environment can be chemical, um, like nutrient cycling, energy cycling, as well as physical things. And then a closed system does not allow for certain exchanges such as energy or mass to occur with the outside world. And so when you're talking about a closed ecological system, you're talking about an ecosystem that is fully or quasi-closed from the outside environment. And so how is this different from systems we've created in the past? Well, that pretty much goes into my research that I did at the very beginning, reviewing CES research from the 1960s onward. And so in the Soviet Union back in the 1960s, they were performing what they call their BIOS experiments. And they had three major experiments, BIOS-1, um, BIOS-2, BIOS and a BIOS-3 complex. And so with their experiments, they were pretty much looking at microalgae-supported systems that would support human and plant life. And so with those, they were able to create closed systems that were actually closed for a good while before they had to be open due to degradation of the soil um, of the plants and loss of oxygen and such. And so they were pretty successful with that. And there's a lot of interesting research that came from that. And then on the U.S. side of things, NASA actually didn't start really doing experiments for closed ecological systems until 1978, so about like 18 years later. And they started with their Controlled Ecological Life Support Systems Program. And so they collaborated with a group called the Botkin Group, which was a group of ecologists and scientists. And they came up with three main points to bring about these systems. And so there are three main points where that the life support systems would resemble terrestrial farms, um, that humans would be a major component and that the purpose of these systems would be to support human life. And so NASA pretty much still uses these founding principles to create these systems. And as an ecologist, especially with what we've come to know about how ecosystems work compared to what they knew back then. Those objectives don't really, (sighs) what to say, (laughs) without offending people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have more knowledge now, so those objectives don't really create a sustainable system that they may be looking for.
1: Okay, all right.
0: Yep, and so there was that. And then another major experiment that a lot of people know about was Biosphere 2. And that was done. The first experiment was done in 1991 with that one. And they pretty much created this closed environment with seven different biomes um, from the earth. And it was very controversial, of course. And it eventually had to be opened due to malfunctions um, in the environment, the technology, biology and psychology of people as well. But I would have to say Biosphere 2 was onto something. They were pretty much saying we can't simply just put plants underneath a dome structure and expect it to work. We kind of need to incorporate these systems where plants are competing and supporting each other and creating this dynamic system that allows humans to survive in. Because when you look at Earth, you see that for millennia, humans have survived within these ecological systems. And as people have explored and gone to new places here on Earth, they've had the natural environment to pretty much help them do that. So why not bring that into space as well? And then, of course, with modern day systems, a lot of the modern day systems we're seeing are human models with like high seas and MDRS, where the main focus is human psychology and human dynamics. And then you have human technology models like the International Space Station and the Bigelow Habitation Modules. And then You have some human technology biology models where biology starts to be incorporated, and that can include in-situ resource utilization systems as well as in-situ fabrication and repair systems. And so we have this huge history of creating these systems, but what's different with what I'm developing and what's been done in the past is that we are actually really trying to recreate an ecosystem and develop it on another planet to create sustainable earth independent module
1: so uh, what, what i'm kind of reading in that is that it's almost like we the plant plant stuff we've done in the past was maybe a little too controlled we've tried to mm-hmm. try to to own every every you know every seed and every leaf but maybe it's more of a stepping back and, and letting nature do its thing just in a in a more natural way right
0: yep biology does not follow the standard principles of an engineered system so trying to (laughs) force it to act a certain way you'll eventually follow the way of entropy and things will start to come apart
1: (laughs) okay cool so um that leads you into the next question so that's kind of why you developed this three zone model right Mm -hmm. so why don't you tell us about that and you know and what what how what it is for one and then you know why it's uh why
0: it works really well Yeah, so the three zone model um, simply consists of a habitation zone, an agricultural zone and an ecological buffer zone. And the ecological buffer zone is the new concept um, that people may not know about. And so it is a model that is established to create a self-sustaining, resilient, independent habitation system specifically on Mars, since all of the focus is on Mars, but you could possibly um, build such a system on the moon as well or on other spaces. So this model was created applying ecological and biological theories and principles by which Earth ecosystems function. Um, And this was to establish an ecological system created outside of Earth that pretty much mimics the buffering capacity of Earth. So if we just had an agricultural zone and the habitation zone, which is a lot of what we see currently with just creating a hydroponic system or just creating a space for crops to grow. There's a lot that can go wrong with that, especially since an ecosystem of that small scale can't really be isolated without starting to degrade. So you can't thermodynamically isolate such a system. You need there to be movement of energy and nutrients Um, to keep the system running. And then, of course, as the plants start to grow, you start to have wide swings in how the atmosphere of your system is working. So increased amounts of oxygen, um, decreased amounts of CO2, and that can become dangerous. Um, MIT did a study on the Mars One system and showed that the way that they were developing their system was very dangerous and that After a certain amount of time, people would actually start dying due to oxygen poisoning. And then there's that increased possibility of a spark blowing up the system due to the increased oxygen amount. Um, So you pretty much have to find a way to stabilize that. And the ecological buffer zone that I include in this three zone model helps to stabilize that. And then also with the ecological buffer zone, it's You can say it's a competitive buffer where it contains a lot of biodiverse biological resources that grow in a wild condition of competition. And this is known as competitive redundancy. So you pretty much have all of these plants in this ecological buffer zone and they're not necessarily supporting each other. They're actually creating a competition with each other. And that's how a lot of ecosystems here on Earth work, where the plants that evolve more quickly or have the adaptations that are better for the situation will survive. And that's what you want. You want to create a unique Martian ecology. And that way you can be able to create a sustainable system on Mars. And so with this three zone model, it does not focus on the nature of the components as do existing and proposed models and technologies that use human management and engineered support systems for the growing of plants but focuses on the components of nature, those being habitation, agriculture, and an ecological buffer. And this is how life has evolved naturally on Earth um, in supportive and competitive relationships with the biosphere. And so this system pretty much allows for a naturally occurring ecosystem to be developed and enables ecological services and leveraging of human adaptability.
1: So, I mean, so walk me through what what types of, of of uh species we'd find in these. Like I'm thinking that your agricultural zone's gonna be well, primarily food, I would presume, mm-hmm. but I mean there could be, I don't know, medicine or, or different plants that we could use for that kind of thing. Yep. But is is the is the buffer zone kind of the same idea, just different types of food and different types of medicine, then we just kinda of let it figure itself out and find out which ones are the most robust species. Is that sort of the idea?
0: That's a way of looking at it. Yeah. The agricultural system is more of the managed portion of the ecological system where you really have people out there working the land and controlling the system. While the ecological buffer zone is pretty much the wilderness surrounding it. Um, We see this on earth when you go out into the countryside where you have these agricultural systems. You see that you usually have trees surrounding it or just open air, open land surrounding it. It's not a closed off system. So, the ecological buffer pretty much creates a more open system that allows for nutrient and energy cycling, where you have this very highly controlled agricultural system and then a free flowing ecological buffer. And with the ecological buffer, yeah, you pretty much have a more biodiverse selection of plants. Um, Some of those can be crops that can be used for food, medicinal purposes, um, and such things like that. You definitely want to choose plants that have multi-purposes so yeah
1: okay um and i mean is there so is there a sort of a minimum maybe this was we'll, we'll probably get into the the epic models that, that you developed but mm-hmm. is there a sort of just like a minimum size because ultimately this is still a closed system at, at some point right so um is there just a point where once you get big enough and you have enough of a of a buffer zone that it starts to kind of you know take a life of its own I mean, Earth Earth is a closed system as well, in a, in a mm-hmm. weird sense, right? I mean, yep. there's not plants spreading out there, so there must be a size, uh, um, you know, threshold.
0: Mm-hmm. So my company's assessment in that is that the size of a system following this model required to support a team of eight humans is twenty two thousand five hundred square meters, and this seems like a lot. Um, and setting up a CES this size for a first mission to Mars seems unrealistic. However, we've developed an approach that we can take to design this model that makes it possible.
1: Okay. Um, so then, yeah, let's talk about the, these designs then. So I, I'm looking at your website mm-hmm. and there's, uh, there's kind of three, three Mars concepts that you have up. So why don't you walk us through uh, the first one. looks like uh, just a render right now, but maybe walk us through that one and we'll go from there.
0: Mm-hmm. So our first design is the Mars Epic X1 design, and that is solely based off of the standard circular dome model, where you have the habitation ECLIS systems, the environmental control and life support systems where the humans would be living. And then you have a huge dome connected to to those systems where you have the agricultural zone and ecological buffer zones. And that is is pretty much just following the standard design of the three zone model. And such a system can be developed based off of a procedure that I me- mentioned before. And I can go into that procedure if you want, how you would go about building such a system like that.
1: You mean like uh, like structurally?
0: Um, pretty much, yeah. So one of the things that people ask me is, how would you build such a large system um, on a first mission to Mars?
1: That's, that's definitely something, <laughs> something that I'm thinking as well, because this, this looks awesome, but it's just a, it's super fantastical mm-hmm. in a weird sense, right? Yep.
0: And so um, pretty much the way you would build this um, module, as well as the Mars Epic X2 um, design, which is, let's see. So let me rewind back a little bit. So the Mars Epic X1 design was pretty much the precursor to the Mars Epic X2 design, And the Mars Epic X2 design was designed to allow for the establishment of a human foothold on Mars. Um, And so to build this system on Mars, you would have the um, fully engineered Eclis systems that the humans have been living in since leaving cis lunar um, space orbit. And then expandable central habitation areas to connect everything together and provide a larger living space. And while the humans are initially living off food growing in hydroponic systems in the habitation modules, you can start to build this system. And so you can start harvesting in-situ resources of water and carbon dioxide from the Martian environment and build the structures for the ecological buffer one section at a time um, as the construction materials become available. So you can pretty much imagine starting off with a small section connected to the ECLSS systems, and then you start building modules of about the same size that are connected to that initial system. Um, So you're pretty much expanding out from there. And so each section will be pressurized with carbon dioxide and the regolith prepared using sterilized human waste, known as biosolids, um, microbiological inoculants, Water and tilling um, prior to planting the 1,000 plus species of seeds that you would be planting in a scattered fashion for the ecological buffer. Um, and then finally, as the structure is expanded, sections of the wild growth that came from spreading the seeds about will be tilled under to provide an organic litter um, layer for th- planting the food crops.
1: It's still still, still quite an endeavor then. Yes, yeah,
0: right? still quite an endeavor, but it is possible one step at a time.
1: I mean, I just I'm thinking here like I it is almost um, surreal that we can actually, you know, sit here and talk about this idea that this is something that's, you know, in the realm of possibility, because these like these renders, I mean, I could stare at these all day. I'm probably going to make them my desktop wallpaper, I think, after this. But <laughs> uh, no, they just they look so great. So um, that's awesome. OK, so, uh, you know, if we get down to the details a little bit, I, I've been following your social media. It looks like you're actually working on on plants already, right? You're, you're testing some of the, the plants um, that you would use in this. So what sort of species are you already experimenting on?
0: Yeah, so I started this experiment. Well, I started planning for this experiment back in the fall of 2015 and um, started the actual prep for the experiment in the spring of 2016. And so this experiment, the official title of it is the Development of Pretreatments the growth and survival of plants in Mars regolith conditions. And so the plants that I am testing in um, the Mars regolith conditions currently are Sonora wheat, golden peas, broccoli, rapeseed, and French sorrel. And these plants were chosen based off of nutritional value, based off of being able to survive in clay-like soil conditions, cold weather conditions as well. And these plants also don't require insect pollination, Mm. which is an important thing because you may not have insects on your first go at Mars. Sure. And so being able to have plants that don't require that kind of pollination is important to consider. I'm also testing different microorganisms for um, inoculants. And so the two microorganisms that I'm testing are rhizobium bacteria, and that's pretty much the nitrogen-fixing bacteria that you would pair with legumes to allow for the fixing of nitrogen into a form that the plants can uptake. And then mycorrhizal fungi. And this fungi creates a mutualistic relationship with vascular plant roots, um, where they're able to access carbohydrates from the plant and in exchange the fungi helps the plant absorb water and mineral nutrients
1: Um, and this mars regolith that i mean you're obviously not using real mars regolith so it's some sort of simulant right Mm -hmm. like where do you even where do you even get mars regolith simulant
0: so that was one of the major (laughs) challenges at the beginning of this experiment um, because the kinds that are widely well known is the JSC Mars One simulant from Orbitech. Um And they get that simulant from a volcano on Hawaii. And that's very expensive, <laughs> very expensive. But I yeah. needed a lot of it. Um, and then you have the Mojave Mars simulant as well that you can get from the Mojave Desert. But I was trying to find a way to get simulant that was relatively inexpensive and that I could get a large amount of it. Um, and so I actually cold called a scientist at Jet Propulsion Laboratory (laughs) because I had seen that he had worked with um, Mojave Mars Simulant in a paper. And I was like, okay, this is where I can get my information from, possibly (laughs) create a collaboration. And if they have extra Mars Simulant, ask them if I could borrow it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I cold called this um, scientist and we got talking and he ended up pointing me towards CyAr Industries, which is a company based in Napa, California. And they have a basalt mixture that you can use to simulate Mars regolith. And um, he had used it in some of the Mars experiments that they do at JPL. So I was able to contact CyAr Industries and they sent me about one tonne of this stuff for free. Wow. So I didn't have to pay for, I only had to pay for shipping. Okay. So they sent me about one ton of it that came in these huge, like 55 gallon drums. And the drums pretty much contained a quarter inch basalt sand shards and then um, bag house basalt dust. And to create this stimulant, you have to take 70 per- 75% quarter-inch basalt sand and mix it with 25% baghouse dust. So I had to manually do this. And (laughs) being an undergraduate student, I did not have research assistance. So imagine taking about a ton of this stuff and mixing it
1: together. A ton, and you're not exaggerating a ton.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it did take a while, especially since I had to mix it and then I had to sterilize it Mm. um, because you don't want the sand to have microbiology in it already. And um, I wanted to start off with completely dried sand as well, right? because that is what you would most likely find on Mars. We don't necessarily know if there is microbiology on Mars yet, but assuming that there's nothing, we wanted to create that condition.
1: If we're looking at the near term for deep space ecology, what's, what's the, the biggest challenge you're going to have to, to face in, in, the, you know, in the short term?
0: Um, so I would have to say the challenges are funding and um, developing the technology to pretty much solve these challenges that you would have on Mars. And when it comes to funding, it can be very difficult, especially for small startup companies in the space industry. Because space exploration is not an immediate return on investment. No. (laughs) So finding someone who's willing to invest in you for like 10 years before you actually come out with Mm -hmm. something can be very difficult. So that's pretty much why the company has developed the way it has to have an Earth market before we go to Mars. And so we pretty much developed this 10year market plan to innovate design and finance our way to providing both the X2 and X3 epic um, Mars designs for when we go to Mars and I don't think I mentioned the epic X3 design um, when we were discussing those pretty much that
1: mm, de- right, right, right yeah
0: pretty much that design is for a crater and it's a multi-level design. And you can go on the website to see um, a video where it actually takes you through the design.
1: Okay, we'll put that in the show notes so that the the listeners can watch it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, And so starting this next spring, we will begin to bring to the Earth Market Solutions to 12 specific sustainability problems of agricultural systems in developed nations. And these solutions will scale within five years into food insecure areas in these same countries, um, also enabling local economic bootstrapping for these areas. So um, some of these areas include food deserts like in inner cities, as well as poor communities that can't necessarily support an agricultural system. And so our final market expansion in 10 years will be to remote and extreme environment locations affected by climate change on Earth. And this will give us the Earth-Epic X3 design we need to solve almost the exact same problems we would have on Mars. Um, and this would make us the experts in deep space food security.
1: So as we start to wrap up here, um, I kind of want to get into a little bit of the of the why. I mean, um, we, you've, you've talked a lot about I think the benefits of of the of the the three zone system. So I, I think we're, we're good there. But is there you know a an, an direct benefit? I should say. But is there is there any you know side benefits or, or, or you know intangibles that come along with this? Like I, I'm thinking, it's probably good for your sanity to to deal, just walk outside in a weird way, right? Like that's that's that that's the stuff I hear from. Um, if you think about Scott Kelly, who spent one year on the ISS, that was mm-hmm. his biggest thing It's like, it's totally fine being up there for a year, but man, I really want to just walk outside for once. Right. Yep. So it, have you, do you think about that in your plan and, and, and what kind of stuff do you do? You, um, catalog for that?
0: That is definitely one of the main things we look at. We're actually working with the company Advancing X to start testing the effects of our system recommendations on the psychological aspects of living in space And so we're actually doing a project with them and I can't go into that much detail about it, but it will definitely give us a lot of information about the psychological effects that come with living in an isolated space, but having that ecological environment surrounding you. Um, And so pretty much when we talk about the psychological benefits of a natural environment, we're talking about ecosystem services. And ecosystem services include um, supporting services, which provides necessities for an ecosystem to function, like nutrient recycling, soil formation. And then you have provisioning services that provide pretty much the products of a system, so food, minerals, energy, water. And then you have regulating services that includes the natural processes of an ecological system. And then you have the cultural services of an ecological system. Um, And that includes the cognitive, spiritual, and reflective side of an um, ecosystem. And that's one of the reasons why we want to bring an ecosystem to Mars is because if you just have an agricultural system on Mars, you're not receiving all of those ecosystem services that ecosystems on Earth provide you. And so focusing on the cultural services that the system provides Having a spread out area of with the changing environment as the plants grow from seeds into taller plants, you have this changing environment and that actually helps ease directed attention. Um, so you are able to relax and not have to focus so much on certain things because there is such a thing as directed attention fatigue. And so having a natural environment to surround you actually helps um, reduce that fatigue, and then of course having these green spaces helps improve your general health and allows for opportunities for reflection for some people spiritually as well. And plus, it's a familiar environment. And being on a foreign alien planet like Mars, having something familiar around you is a comfort. Yeah. It also creates a space where people are more likely to socialize and. Um, participate in recreational activities and such. And so it pretty much provides a space where people can go and just relax and... Be human. Be human, yeah, pretty much.
1: Yeah, I know I I hear a lot of criticism sometimes of, of people who... Um, who might go to Mars one day. And, and that's one of the biggest things you say is that like, yeah, it sounds very romantic to go to another planet, but it's a wasteland and it's freezing cold and there's no air and you will die. Like, mm-hmm. so I'm, um, when I think about, you know, stepping into a, this epic X1 and, and that almost seems like it's, it's, it's much more fun. Like I can just imagine seeing some sort of Martian landscape, but you've still got maybe there's a fan blowing and you have the breeze and the smells of a, of a, of a plant world. That's, uh, mm-hmm. I think that makes it much more tenable for sure. So this looks like amazing work, Morgan and them. So uh, you should be very <laughs> proud. It's, it's very exciting stuff. Thank you. So if the listeners want to get involved in any way, is there anything they can do to help out?
0: Yeah, so you can visit our website, www.deepspaceecology.com. And in our menu, there's a get involved button. And the different things you can do is if you're looking for a job, you can join the staff. Um, we also do collaborations with scientists as well. So if you're a scientist and want to collaborate with us, there's an opportunity for that. We also have a um, program for students who are working on thesis work and want to do research with a professor. And so we offer an opportunity for doing that. Um, You can also get involved by becoming a business partner or supporting our executive team. If you want to support my actual research that I'm doing individually here at Duke um, with the different pretreatments to support these plants in Mars regolith conditions, um, you can go to my GoFundMe page, which is GoFundMe.com slash Morgan Mars, and you can donate. And we have prizes that we're giving out to people who donate certain amounts.
1: Awesome. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes as well. And then um, any uh, social media or other blogs that you want
0: to plug? Yep. You can find my company and myself on Twitter. Um, by simply look, looking for a deep space ecology or Duke Morgan Mars. We're also on Instagram and Facebook.
1: Morgan, thanks so much for joining us today. This is uh, really fascinating stuff and uh, um, I know the listeners are going to love this and I, I wish you a lot of luck in your uh, your future.
0: Thank you, Jake. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: So are you excited to go to Mars now? It's certainly more to imagine such a trip if you knew there was a 22,500 square meter park to hang out in. I know I'll be paying close attention to where deep space ecology progresses in the future. But that's all we have for today's show. Now, before I sign off, I'd like to call your attention to a survey that I'm conducting. You see, as I look forward to 2017, I realize that I'd like to get a better picture of who you, the listeners, really are. I'd like to know what sorts of episodes you're into, which ones you're not, this will help me pick guests going forward and curate the episode content more appropriately to who's actually subscribed. If you head over to com, I'll have a blog entry called the We Martians Listener Survey. It's short and will take less than 10 minutes, and it's completely anonymous. If you'd be willing, it would really help me out in the new year. As always, if you have any feedback, please send it to info at wemartians.com. I'd love to hear from you. We're on social media, too. Twitter handle is at we underscore Martians. And our Instagram and Facebook usernames are both at WeMartians. Lastly, if you aren't one of the seven who have already done so on the non-Canadian iTunes stores, please consider leaving a review and or a rating. It helps others find the podcast. And don't worry, I get alerts now. This time, I will see it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye, everyone.